Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, welcome back, and here we are, the last chapter of Book 2 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Chapter 56, The Harleian Manuscript as a Germ of History, Customs of the Craft in the 17th Century. And again, this is the end of Book 2, and there's seven volumes in total, and it's taken an average of a year to get through them, you know, mixing in other podcasts. It has been seen in our discussion how much information as to the practices of the craft in medieval times may be derived from the statutes and regulations contained in the old constitutions, and more especially in that most valuable and interesting one, the Harleian Manuscript. This document differs very materially from the others that preceded. These differences suggest to us that there were more important changes which about that time took place in the customs of the craft. Of this manuscript, the date of which is supposed to be about 1660, Brother Hugen has truly said that it contains the fullest information of any that we are aware of and is of great value and importance in consequence. An analysis of this manuscript will sustain the statement of this tireless explorer of old records and to whom we are indebted for a correct copy from the original which is deposited in the British Museum. No previous analysis, so far as we know, was ever attempted of this important manuscript to deduce its true character from the internal evidence which it contains until it was so examined by Brother Mackey. We have shown that the Masons or Freemasons Company received a charter from Charles II just about the time that the Harleian manuscript appears to have been written. It has also been suggested that the granting of the new charter would probably be very timely for the company to make some changes in its book of constitutions by the adoption of new regulations. Therefore, we may fairly suppose that the Harleian manuscript, differing so much as it does from preceding manuscripts, is a copy of the Book of Constitutions of the Mason's Company as it was modified in the reign of Charles II. In presenting us with the laws of the craft, which were at that day in force, it supplies us with a very accurate and trustworthy showing of the customs of the fraternity as they then existed. Therefore, a brief analysis of some of the most important items will certainly advance us very considerably in our knowledge of the progress of Freemasonry in the 17th century, about a hundred years before the operative element of Freemasonry was taken over by the speculative. Hence, Brother Mackey called the Harleian Manuscript a germ of Masonic history. We may profitably commence our analysis of the historical points developed in this manuscript by directing our attention to the origin and meaning of the words accepted Mason, which are so familiar at the present day in the title given to the order as that of the free and accepted Masons. The 26th article of the Harleian Constitutions directs that no person shall be accepted a Mason unless he shall have a lodge of five Freemasons. And the next article says that no person shall be accepted a Freemason, but such as are of able body, honest parentage, etc. The word accepted here used is of some importance, 
as having been one of the titles afterward adopted by the speculative Freemasons who called themselves free and accepted, in allusion to this very article. The word is employed in the Harleian manuscript. Older manuscripts have the expressions Masons allowed, which evidently means the same thing. In the two articles cited above, it is very plain that an accepted Mason is one who has been admitted into the fraternity by some ceremony, which is called his exception or acceptation. It is equivalent to the modern word initiation. But in the 28th article, we find the same word used in a double sense of both initiation and affiliation. There we see that no person shall be accepted a Freemason, nor shall be admitted into any lodge or assembly, until he hath brought a certificate of the time of exception from the lodge that accepted him unto the master of that limit and division where such lodge was kept, which said master shall enroll the same in parchment in a roll to be kept for that person, to give an account of all such exceptions at every general assembly. There is a very large and interesting amount of knowledge of the character of the Masonic organization and of its customs in the 17th century to be got from this article, if properly understood. No one was to be accepted a Freemason, that is, admitted into the fellowship, or made free of the guild or company, or, as we would say in modern phrase, affiliated, being other than a Cowan or Rufflayer, one who was not permitted to work or mingle with the Freemasons, unless he had brought to the master of the limit or division in which a certain lodge was situated, a certificate that he had been accepted, the word here signifying initiated or admitted by some ceremony into the craft, in that lodge. The master of that division or limit must have been possessed of an authority or jurisdiction over several lodges, something like that of the provincial grandmasters in England or the district deputy grandmasters in the United States. This master kept a list of the Freemasons thus made whose making had been certified to him and made a return of them to the General Assembly at the annual meeting. This is much the same as is done at the present day when the lodges make a return to the Grand Lodge at its annual communication of the number and names of the candidates they have been initiated during the year. Evidently, there were two kinds of acceptation. The first acceptation into the lodge, which was also called making a mason, and the second acceptation into the full fellowship of the society or company, which was to be done only on the production of a certificate of the time and place when the first acceptation or initiation occurred. We find a like case in the modern practice. A man is first initiated in a lodge, and then he is made a member of it. The one usually follows the other, but not necessarily. A candidate may be initiated in a lodge, and yet not claim or receive membership in it. Such cases sometimes occur. The candidate has been accepted in the old sense of initiated in the lodge, but if he goes away and desires to be accepted into the full fellowship of the fraternity, which acts of his, in modern language, is called affiliation by uniting with another lodge, he cannot be so accepted or affiliated into its fellowship unless he brings a certificate of his previous exception or initiation in the lodge in which he was made. There is an apparent confusion in the double sense in which the word acceptation or exception is used, which can only be removed by this understanding which explains the two kinds of acceptance referred to in the same article. This will hereafter be applied to an explanation of some interesting Masonic circumstances that occurred in the life of the celebrated antiquary Elias Ashmole. One more point, however, in this important article must be first referred to. It is pres prescribed that when a member is to be made or accepted, it must be in a lodge of at least five Freemasons, one of whom must be a master or warden, of the limit or division where the said lodge shall be kept. 
masters and wardens were therefore ranks, it does not follow that they were degrees, in whom alone it was invested the right of presiding at the making of Freemasons. It was not necessary that he should be the master or warden of the lodge where the initiation or acceptation was made. The lodge might indeed be a mere temporary affair, consisting of five Freemasons called together for the especial purpose of accepting a new brother of the craft. But it was essential that a Freemason, not a stranger brought from some other section of the country, but one residing or working in the vicinity, and who was not a mere fellow, but who had reached the rank of a master or warden, should be present and, of course, preside at the meeting. Preston confirms this in a note in his Illustrations of Masonry, where he says, A sufficient number of Masons met together within a certain district, with the consent of the sheriff or chief magistrate of the place, were empowered at this time to make Masons and practice the rites of Masonry without warrant of constitution. The consent of the sheriff or chief magistrate, which Preston supposes to be necessary to the making of a Freemason, is not required by the Harleian or any later regulations which represent the constitutions of the Mason's company. The Regius poem and the Cook manuscript, which closely follow it, do say that the sheriff of the county, the mayor of the city, and many knights and nobles are to be at the General Assembly. We have endeavored to show that the Regius statutes belong to a different organization of the craft. Another expression in this 28th Harleian regulation clears up an important point in the organization of the Masonic fraternity at that time. Of the five Freemasons who were required to be present at the acceptance of a candidate, one was to be a master and warden, and another of the trade of Freemasonry. Hence it follows that the other three might be non-Masons or persons not belonging to the craft. This is the very best legal evidence that we could have that in the middle of the 17th century, non-professional persons were admitted as honorary or associate members into the fraternity. The speculative element, as we now have it, was of course not then introduced, but the craft did not consist altogether of working Freemasons. These explanations enable us to understand the often quoted passages from the diary of Elias Ashmole, which without them seem to contradict each other. For instance, October 16th, 4.30 p.m., I was made a Freemason at Warrington in Lancashire with Colonel Henry Mainwarning of Carincam in Cheshire. The names of those that were then of the lodge were Mr. Rich Pinkett Warden, Mr. James Collier, Mr. Rich Sankey, Henry Littler, John Ellum, Rich Ellum, and Hugh Brewer. The circumstances of the ceremony here detailed are strictly in accord with the regulations which were then in force and which were not long afterward incorporated into the constitutions as these are preserved in the Harleian manuscript. That document says that at the acceptance of a Freemason there shall be a lodge of five Freemasons. The Lansdowne manuscript says there should be at least six or seven. The new regulations in the Harleian manuscript reduce the number to five, which is the number required at the present day in speculative Freemasonry for the admission of a fellow craft. Of these five, one was to be a master or warden. We find Mr. Rich Pinkett acting as warden. Another one of the five was to be of the trade of Freemasonry. We know what respect was in those days paid to the distinction of rank that the titles of Esquire and Gentleman were carefully observed the former having the letters ESQ affixed and the latter the letters MR prefixed to his name, while the yeoman, merchant, or tradesman was entitled to neither, but was known only by his simple name. He who can live without manual labor, says an old heraldic authority, or can support himself as a gentleman without interfering in any mechanic employment, is called Mr. and may write himself gentleman. 
As Ashmole was a noted scholar and certainly careful about the rules of rank, we may safely conclude that Mr. James Collier and Mr. Rich Sankey were gentlemen and not professional masons, while plain Henry Littler, John Ellum, Rich Ellum, and Hugh Brewer, who are recorded without the prefix Mr., were only workmen of the trade of Freemasonry. Ashmole had been made a Freemason, that is, been received as a member of the craft. As Brother Mackey read the regulations, another step was necessary before Ashmole could be accepted into the freedom and fellowship of the company. No person shall hereafter be accepted a Freemason, says the New Articles, until he hath brought a certificate of the time of his acceptance from the lodge that accepted him. Further, that every person who is now a Freemason shall bring to the master a note of his exception to the end the same may be enrolled in such priority of place as the person shall deserve, and to the end the whole company and fellows may the better know each other. Brother Mackey says the entries in Ashmole's diary show the way in which Ashmole obeyed this regulation, which was then in full force. Ashmole writes, March 1682. About 5 p.m. I received a summons to appear at a lodge to be held the next day at Mason's Hall, London. Accordingly I went, and about noon were admitted into the Fellowship of Freemasons. Sir William Wilson Knight, Captain Rich Boothwick, Mr. Will Woodman, Mr. William Gray, Mr. Samuel Taylor, and Mr. William Wise. I was the senior fellow among them, it being 35 years since I was admitted, there were present beside myself the fellows after named, Mr. Tho Thomas Wise, Mr. of the Mason's Company, this present year, Mr. Thomas Shorthose, Mr. Thomas Shadbolt, Wainsford Esquire, Mr. Rich, young Mr. John Shorthose, Mr. William Hammond, Mr. John Thompson, and Mr. Will Stanton. We all dined at the Half Moon Tavern in Cheapside at a noble dinner prepared at the charge of the new accepted Masons. Brother Hugan vouches for the above as being an exact copy of the two entries in the Diary of Ashmole. A comparison has been made by Brother Condor of these names with the list of members of the Masons Company of London. He finds that in 1682, Thomas Wise was master of the company. John Shorthose and William Stanton were wardens. Also, that the following were members. Woodman, Gray, Taylor, William Wise, Thomas Shorthose, Shadbolt, Wainsford, Young, Hammond, and Thompson. He also points out that the others were doubtless member of the Mason's Hall Lodge of Freemasons, where the old speculative part of Masonry had been kept secretly alive during the troubled state of the country since the Reformation. To many who have read these two extracts from Ashmole's diary, the eminent writer was appeared to involve himself in a contradiction by first stating that he was made a Mason at Warrington in the year 1646, and afterwards that he was admitted to the Fellowship of Freemasons in 1682. But there is really no contradiction. The new articles in the Harleian manuscript afford one explanation, which was entirely satisfactory to Brother Mackey. In 1646, while Ashmole was on a visit to Lancashire, he was induced to become a Freemason, that is, as a non-professional member to unite himself with the craft. This had been frequently done by other noted men, and the regulations, which are not necessarily of the date of the manuscript, provided for the admission or initiation of persons who were not workmen or professional masons. A lodge for the purpose had been called at Warrington. Whether this was a permanent lodge or whether it was only a temporary one called together and presided over by a warden of that district is immaterial. The diary throws no light on the question. It was, however, most probably a temporary lodge, called together by Warden Penkett for the sole purpose of admitting Ashmole and Mainwaring or making them Freemasons. The regulations authorized this act. 
The only restrictions were that there should be five Freemasons present, one of whom was to be a master or warden, and another, a workman of the craft, or an operative Freemason. These restrictions were duly observed. Brother Mackey says that this act, though it made him a Freemason, did not admit Ashmole to a full fellowship in the society. Persons were often made Freemasons in temporary or occasional lodges. These were dissolved after they had performed the act of admitting newcomers, for which sole purpose they had been organized. It was necessary that the person so admitted should present a certificate of the time when and the place where he had been admitted or accepted to some superior officer who is called in the regulations the master of that limit and division where such lodge was kept. He was probably the master mason who presided over the craft, who lived and worked in that section of the kingdom, or perhaps also the master of a permanent lodge, including all the craft in that division and assembling at stated periods. This permanent lodge, to which all the craft repaired, might have been called an assembly. If so, that would account for the frequent use of the word assembly in all the old manuscripts, the place to which every Freemason was required to go on due notice if it was within five or ten, or as some say, within fifty miles of him. This surmise also explains the regulation which says that no one, unless he produced a certificate of his previous exception, could be admitted into any lodge or assembly, where the words lodge and assembly would seem to indicate two kinds of Masonic meetings, the former referring to the lodge as temporarily organized for special purposes, and the latter to the communication of Freemasons in a permanent body upon stated occasions and for the transaction of the general business of the craft, and where the certificates were pe to be presented by those accepted or initiated in the temporary lodge. Ashmole did not then, or at any time soon after, present such a certificate to the master of that limit in Lancashire that he had been made a Freemason in a lodge at Warrington on October 16, 1646. If he had done so, we may be sure that he would have mentioned the fact in his diary, which is so minute in its details as to frequently make a record of matters absurdly unimportant. Accordingly, as is claimed by Brother Mackey, though a Freemason by virtue of his acceptance or making at Warrington, Ashmole was not admitted to the fellowship of the craft, he was not free of the company, was not entitled to an entrance into any of the lodges or assemblies, nor could he take part in any of the proceedings of the fraternity. He was a regularly made Freemason, and that was all. He was, in fact, very much in the position of those who are called unaffiliated Freemasons in the present day. Thirty-five years afterwards, in Brother Mackey's opinion, Ashmole did what he had neglected to do before and perfected his relationship to the craft. On March 11, 1682, he attended the meeting of a lodge held in Mason's Hall, the place of meeting of the Mason's company. The lodge was thus held under the sanction of that company. William Wise, the master of the company, was present. In 1646, Ashmole was made a Freemason. In 1682, he was summoned to the Fellowship of the Society at a meeting in London. A careful reading of the extracts from Brother Ashmole's diary indicates that he was an invited guest at the meeting in London. He may have been more than this, but we cannot be sure. Brother Hugan holds that Brother W. H. Rylands has proved that Ashmole's initiation, 1646, was at a speculative lodge, that he was not a mere honorary member, but was then admitted to the full privileges enjoyed by the brethren who had elected him. The account of the acceptance of Elias Ashmole, recorded by himself, and therefore of undoubted authenticity, when thus explained, supplies us with nearly all the details necessary to understand the usages of the craft in respect to initiations and admissions in the 17th century. They will be more fully analyzed at the close of the present chapter. 
but it will be necessary first to refer to another authority of great importance on the same subject. Robert Plott, who was the keeper of the museum presented by, by Elias Ashmole to the University of Oxford, wrote and in 1686 published The Natural History of Staffordshire, in which work he gives an account of the Masonic customs prevailing at that time in the country. Plott was not a Freemason. The evidence of Dr. Plott is extremely valuable, says Oliver, because it shows the existence of lodges of Masons in Staffordshire and the practice of certain ceremonies of initiation in the 17th century in accordance with the regulations laid down in the manuscript constitution whose authenticity is thus confirmed. Dr. Plott says that they had in Staffordshire a custom of admitting men into the Society of Freemasons, that in the moorlands of this country seems to be of greater request than anywhere else, though I find the custom spread more or less all over the nation, for here I found persons of the most eminent quality that did not disdain to be of this fellowship. He then proceeds to relate and unfavorably to criticize the legend of the craft. Continuing his account of the customs of the Masonic Society, he says, Into which society, when they are admitted, they call a meeting, or lodge as they term it in some places, which must consist at least of five or six of the ancients of the order, whom the candidates present with gloves, and so likewise to their wives, and entertain with a collation according to the custom of the place. This ended, they proceed to the admission of them, which chiefly consists in the communication of certain secret signs, whereby they are known to one another all over the nation, by which means they have maintenance whither ever they travel. For if any man appear, though altogether unknown, that can show any of these signs to a fellow of the society, whom they otherwise call an accepted mason, he is obliged presently to come to him, from what company or place soever he be in, nay, though from the top of a steeple, what hazard or inconvenience soever he run, to know his pleasure and assist him, viz. if he want work, he is bound to find him some, or if he cannot do that, to give him money, or otherwise support him till work can be had, which is one of their articles, and it is another that they advise the masters they work for, according to the best of their skill, acquainting them with the goodness or badness of their materials, and if they be any way out of the contrivance of the buildings, modestly to rectify them in it, that masonry be not dishonored, and many such like that are commonly known, but some others they have to which they are sworn after their fashion, that none know but themselves. There is another document of far more importance than those which have been cited, and which gives a more complete description of the customs of the craft in the 17th century. We refer to the old record known as the Sloan Manuscript, number 3329. Of the three copies of the constitutions preserved in the British Museum and known as the Sloan Manuscript, the one numbered 3329 is by far the most valuable and interesting. A part of it was inserted by Findel in the appendix to his History of Freemasonry, but the complete text was published by Brother Hugan in The Voice of Masonry for October 1872 and in The National Freemason for April 1873. There has been some doubt about the exact date of the manuscript. Brother Hugan came to the conclusion that this was written soon after the revival of 1770. Messrs. Bond and Sims of the British Museum, experts in old manuscripts, suppose that its date is probably in the beginning of the 18th century. Brother Woodford mentions an authority on manuscripts, Walbrand, who declares the language to be of early 17th century use, but the paper mark to be of early 18th century. Finally, Findel thinks it originated at the end of the 17th century and that it was found among the papers which Dr. Plott left behind him on his death 
and was one of the sources whence his communications on Freemasonry were delivered. But if Plot used this manuscript in writing his article on Freemasonry, of which there is certainly very strong internal evidence, then the date of the manuscript could not have been later than 1685, for he published his book in 1686, and therefore, if he had this information before him, it was most probably written sometime before that date. The Sloan Manuscript, number 3329, British Museum, differs from all the other manuscripts in containing neither the ordinances nor the legend of the craft. It is simply a description of the ritual of the Society of Operative Freemasons as practiced at that period when it was written. From all these important documents, the Harleian Constitutions, the Diary of Ashmole, the Narrative of Dr. Plot, and the Sloan Manuscript, comparing them all with each other and finding that they confirm one another, we are able to form an accurate notion of what the, were the customs of the craft in the 17th century, and from that information we may reasonably infer that they were in the 16th and the 15th centuries. A careful analysis will lead to the following results. There was a chartered company of Freemasons, just as there were incorporated companies of other trades and crafts, such as the mercers, the drapers, the carpenters, the smiths, etc. As this company had a charter early in the 15th century, it must have exercised an influence over the craft in that early period, and the early manuscript constitutions were doubtless copies of its Guild Book of Laws and Records. But it is not mentioned by name in any of the manuscripts before the middle of the 17th century. There is a frequent allusion to lodges as the places where masters and fellows worked, and there are references to an assembly which, from the language used, must have been a meeting of several masters and fellows. But there is no express recognition of the company in any manuscript before the Harleian. From that time forth, the Masons or Freemasons Company seems to have been the head of the craft in a certain district. There were several of these companies in the various cities, but the principal one was that of London. However, or wherever a person was admitted as a Freemason, he could only be considered as fulfilling all the requirements when he had reported the fact to the superior authority in the district where he was made, whereupon his name was formally enrolled. There were, besides these companies, lodges in various parts of the country. Some of these lodges, at least toward the close of the century, were permanent bodies, but many were merely temporary groups of Freemasons called together for the purpose of initiating a candidate who was afterwards reported to the master of the limit or division in which the lodge had been held. There was some ceremony, though this may have been a very brief one, at the time of admitting a newly made brother. There were secret signs and words and an oath of secrecy and fidelity, but there are no documents in existence disclosing beyond dispute the ceremony of initiation. There is no evidence of several distinct degrees of initiation. Masonic students have the conclusion that what are called in the modern rituals the first, second, and third degrees were the later invention of the speculative Freemasons of the 18th century. This subject will hereafter be discussed at length in a special chapter. We readily see that the fraternities of the operative Freemasons of the 17th and preceding centuries were the germ seed which developed in the 18th century into the full fruit of speculative Freemasonry. The Harleian Constitutions present us with the basis of the laws which still govern the institution. The diary detailing Ashmole's reception and Plot's unbiased account of Freemasonry proved that many customs of the present day were then in existence, and from the Sloan manuscript we learned that certain points of secret instruction were pre which prevailed in the 17th century have been put, with necessary changes of course, into modern rituals. Comparing the Sloan document with the rituals published soon after the revival in 1717, and these again with those of the present day, 
we see how the later and perfected system has gradually developed out of the one of the middle of the 17th century. And we will be justified in believing that the same system was in existence at a much earlier period. Not only is there no difficulty in tracing the connection between the lodges of operative Freemasons existing before the year 1717 with those of the non-operative Freemasons who in that year founded the Grand Lodge of England, but it is impossible to avoid the conviction that there was a regular progress whereby the one merged into the other. We have now arrived at that period in the history of Freemasonry which brings us into touch with affairs just before and also at the organization of the Grand Lodge of England or, as it is called, the Revival of Freemasonry in 1717. But before that subject can be discussed, we must return in our historical inquiries to the Freemasonry in the sister kingdom of Scotland and on the continent of Europe, and especially to the traveling Freemasons and to the later organization of the Stonemasons of Germany. Alright, that completes Book 2. So, next round, we will start on Book 3, and sounds like we will talk a little bit about the uh, Freemasonry in Scotland, Freemasonry elsewhere on the continent of Europe, traveling Freemasons, traveling stonemasons. So uh, lots and lots to cover. Thank you for listening as always. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.